John chapter 19, verses 25 through 30. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge of the sour wine, put it on a hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. Having bowing, and bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. morning. I invite you to be taking out your Bibles and be turning to the Gospel of John, the 19th chapter. We'll be beginning our study there this morning. We're certainly grateful for the good many that we have with us this morning. We're able to spend time in song and in prayer and in the study of God's Word and that we might be built up and encouraged and edified. And we certainly are thankful for the presence of each and every one here that has shown an interest in spiritual things this Lord's Day. We are going to be continuing a series of lessons looking at the seven statements of Jesus that He made while hanging on the cross. We're going to be continuing that this morning, looking at the statement that Jesus said, It is finished. And as we might consider what we have seen throughout this series, we have seen many of the statements that Jesus has made We have seen Him demonstrate forgiveness while hanging on the cross. Whenever He implored to His Father, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. We see that Jesus gave consolation, that He gave hope to the thief that was hanging on the cross that requested for Him to be remembered whenever He, when Jesus would enter into His kingdom. And Jesus told that thief, today you shall be with me in paradise, giving him hope and consolation for the life that is to come. You see, Jesus show affection and having familial ties. Whenever he was here in John 19, that he has his family there at the foot of the cross in verse 25. Says, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister. His aunt was there. He has family that was there. And then he looks and he sees the disciple whom he loved. And he gave his mother into that disciple's charge. He was not going to leave this earth without taking care of his mother. You just have to appreciate that affection and the familial bond that Jesus had for His mother. Even while He was hanging on the cross and going through the pain and the anguish that He was feeling and enduring, Jesus is this, was despaired at the time. When Jesus implored, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? He felt as if everyone had turned against Him. He felt that even God was not there to be found. 
And as we looked at that text and the context surrounding that, we see that despair actually turns to a deep and abiding faith and hope that God does hear and answer our prayers. Even in our darkest moments, whenever we may feel that God is not listening, God still cares. God is there. And we need to trust in that. And then there is the word of suffering. Just you see in John chapter 19 and verse 28, whenever Jesus says, I am thirsty. You think about those words. Very simple, very straightforward. They demonstrate a great deal though, don't they? Because they demonstrate to us that Jesus was going through pain. That He was suffering immensely. And that He cried out for thirst. And the bitter treatment that He was enduring, the soldiers could not even give Him a bit of water or moisture that was pure. They mixed sour wine and hyssop, placed it on a sponge and put that on His lips. It's torture. These are the words and the statements that Jesus made while on the cross. And today we're going to look at the sixth statement that Jesus made on the cross found in John chapter 19 and in verse 30 whenever it says, Therefore when Jesus had received the sour wine, He said, It is finished. And He bowed His head and gave up His spirit. Have you ever wondered what Jesus meant by that statement? What exactly did Jesus finish while on the cross? What did He complete there? The Greek word there in John chapter 19 and verse 30, in that word finished, it is the Greek word teleo. And it means to complete an activity or process, bring to an end, to finish or complete that we're looking at what Jesus was trying to comprehensively finish and complete or accomplish by His death on the cross. Many are willing to suggest that it was the ending of His pain and the anguish, the suffering that He was going through. That He's saying, it's done, it's finished, it's over. And that certainly could be part of it. Maybe it was the completion of the mockery, the insults, and the humiliation that he was enduring and suffering. And that certainly is a part of it. Perhaps it's talking about the fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture and prophecies about the death of Jesus and the Messiah. That certainly would be a component in what Jesus accomplished and finished on the cross. And many times that word teleo, it is used in a context about fulfilling the Scriptures. And what Jesus accomplished certainly was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. But I believe there is more to the statement than even just any of these isolated and standing alone. I think a more comprehensive view of what Jesus accomplished is probably in order. Because in John 
chapter 4, earlier in the same gospel, in John chapter 4, remember that Jesus, he was having this conversation with the woman at the well. And after he had conversed with her, she left to go tell others in Samaria about him. And he is left with his disciples. And in John chapter 4 and in verse 34, he is discussing with his disciples about food and whether they have anything to eat. And then Jesus makes this odd statement in John chapter 4 and verse 34, My food is to, to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. That Jesus' whole purpose and his, uh, his reasoning for coming to this world was to do the will of the Father and to accomplish what the Father wanted Him to do. Later on, a little bit closer to the context of John chapter 19, we find in John chapter 17, and in verse 4, as Jesus was praying on the night that He was to be betrayed by Judas. In John chapter 17 and in verse 4, as He is praying to His Father in heaven, He says, I glorified you on the earth having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Jesus says, I have done it. I have accomplished what it is that you have wanted me to do. And so what more fitting words could you think of for Jesus to utter as He is about to expire? That He wanted to make it His whole life's mission to doing the will of His Father. And so He says, it is finished. Jesus finished the work that God had given Him. I believe that's a very short and succinct summary of what Jesus meant whenever He uttered those words. And there are several things that Jesus knew regarding His death and the atoning work on the cross. And He knew that the cross was where He would end up being. He knew from well before these events that He would give up His life. If you go back to John chapter 3, in John the third chapter, a very famous context of Scripture with the discussion that Jesus has with Nicodemus at night. And you, we're all very familiar with John chapter 3 and verse 16 when Jesus told Nicodemus, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. We're very familiar with those words. But if you just go a few verses earlier, in verse 11, as Jesus is answering and discussing questions with Nicodemus, He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven but He who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And then notice verse 14. As Moses lifted up 
the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus understood very early on in His ministry and in His life that His life was going to be given up, that He was going to hang on a cross for people to see. The cross did not happen by accident. Jesus knew before His betrayal and before His crucifixion that He would suffer death by crucifixion. In John chapter 10, in John the 10th chapter, and in verse 18, in John chapter 10 and in verse 18, notice here, What Jesus says, No one has taken it away from me, talking about His life, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Jesus realizes that He has the authority that His life is going to have to be laid down. Just a couple chapters over in chapter 12 of the Gospel of John. In John chapter 12 and verse 32, Jesus again says, And if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. Jesus knew throughout his life that his life would go and end at the cross. And so the cross did not happen by accident. The death of Jesus was in accordance to the predetermined plan of God and God's foreknowledge. We see that Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says that Jesus' death was in accordance with the Scriptures. You just have to read Isaiah 53, for instance, and you see that there is the intense suffering that the Messiah would endure and have to go through. The cross was not an accident. The cross and the death of Jesus accomplished what we could not on our own. The cross and the death of Jesus accomplished what the law of Moses was weak and incapable of fulfilling and accomplishing. The forgiveness of our sins. When Jesus makes this statement that it is finished, He is saying that I have accomplished what God wanted me to accomplish. And He is not taken by surprise of any of these events. But I want us to think even more in depth about what this all involves. What does this mean that Jesus came to finish the Father's will? And that is that Jesus, I think, became the perfect sacrifice for sin. Turning to Isaiah 53, we alluded to that a moment ago. But if you would turn to Isaiah 53, and you thinking about that context of Scripture, and in contrast to how the Gospel of John opens up, in John chapter 1, you 
have turned to Isaiah 53, just hold your place there and you can just listen along or you can turn back to the Gospel of John. We're going to flip back and forth a little bit. But in John chapter 1 and in verse 29, when Jesus came to be baptized by John the Baptist, John announced and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You think about that statement and how it would have been pregnant with meaning for a Jew. Taking their mind back to the whole sacrificial system. That here is the Lamb of God. The perfect Lamb of God. That would take away the sin of the world. And it would have been alluding to this whole idea of the sacrifices that were required for sin and for guilt in order to obtain forgiveness. In the Gospel of Mark, in Mark chapter 12, in Mark chapter 12, and in verse 28, when Jesus is asked by one of the scribes, what commandment is the greatest of all? And He answers that. And then, as they continue to discuss... Jesus and the scribe, he says in verse 33 that the scribe is talking to Jesus and he says, you're right, teacher. And he quotes Old Testament Scripture to Jesus. And he says, and to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. The word all or whole burnt offerings. That might be how your translation would read. The sacrificial system under the Old Covenant that it required a complete sacrifice, the whole animal to be burned. And that was offered each and every day. Not just once a day, but twice a day. At morning and at evening. And that there was always that animal on the altar. That is the kind of thing that would have been going on in the back of Jews' mind as they heard John make that statement, Here, behold, the Lamb of God. And here he's not talking about a lamb, he's talking about the one who would give himself up. That Isaiah prophesied about in Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53 and in verse 3, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. thinking about Jesus and His experience on the cross in relation to these words. And the words that would be sort of the technical jargon associated with sacrifices. That He bore our sins. In verse 5, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging we are healed. In verse 6, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. These are words that describe Jesus as the sacrifice for our sins. In verse 8, it says, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due, his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. That Jesus, he offered himself as a sacrifice, as the offering for guilt and for sin. He was willing to lay down His life. You go back to the book of Leviticus, in Leviticus chapter 6, and you just see the sacrificial system described in immense detail, in greater detail than what we many of us would like, probably, to at least from a reading standpoint. Because reading the book of Leviticus is not the most exciting stuff, is it? But in Leviticus chapter 6, and in verse 9, where Moses is describing the guilt offerings, the offerings that are required for when someone has accrued some guilt for sin and transgression. He says in chapter 6, of, in verse 9 of the book of Leviticus, command Aaron and his son, saying, this is the law for the burnt offering. The burnt offering itself shall remain on the earth, on the altar all night until the morning, and the fire on the altar is to be kept burning on it. He goes on in verse 12, The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out, but the priest shall burn wood on it every morning. And he shall lay out the burnt offering on it and offer up in smoke the fat portions of the peace offerings on it. That this offering the, for guilt and for sin, Jesus is the embodiment of that. And he became the embodiment of the sacrifices for sin. And in Isaiah 53, in verse 11, it says, As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. That the Father sees the Messiah, he sees his Son. And when Jesus cried out, It is finished, 
God, in essence, said, I am satisfied. He said, this is what my son came to do. It's why I sent him here. To offer himself as the sacrifice for our sins. It wasn't that the father enjoyed seeing his son endure the pain and the anguish and the hardship. It wasn't that he took pleasure in the ill treatment that Jesus endured. But he took pleasure and satisfaction that his son was completely obedient to him. In the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 5 and in verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience for the things which he suffered. It was that perfect obedience that Jesus as the sacrifice for sin that qualified Jesus to go to the cross to offer himself as the guilt offering, the sacrifice for sin. Jesus was qualified be the one that would do that. Jesus accomplished salvation by going to the cross. In the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 5, this is a second thing that Jesus accomplished here when He went to the cross. In Romans chapter 5, and in verse 6-10, through 10, if you will notice in this context of Scripture with me, while the Apostle Paul is writing here, he says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. You see these words, the terms that we are described as when we are apart from Christ and apart from God. We're helpless, we're ungodly, we're sinners, we're unrighteous. We are the very enemy of God. But what did Christ do? What did Christ accomplish? Notice, Christ died. Christ died. While we were deserving of condemnation and guilt and suffering, while we were worthy of death, ourself, in eternal separation from God, where we stood condemned, Christ gave up His life for you and for me. That phrase in verse 6, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. In verse 8, But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In verse 10, 
For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. That the solution to all of these problems that we had brought upon ourselves, what God was willing to do was send forth His Son and Christ died for us. When Jesus went to the cross and whenever He cried out, it is finished, He was saying, I have done everything that I can do to reconcile the world to God. And praise be to God that there is an answer. Because if it were not for Christ dying on the cross, then we would be in the condition of Romans chapter 5 and verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, that would be the end of it right there. We would be under the reign of sin and death. Full stop. But he goes on. Even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Because Christ gave up His life, we can be saved. We can be justified. And we can live not under the reign of sin and death, but we can live under the reign of grace and righteousness unto eternal life. What an immense blessing that is. The third thing that Jesus accomplished on the cross was Jesus transformed us. The means and the mechanism by which we could be transformed and changed into that sinner, the ungodly, that enemy of God, into someone who is holy and righteous or blameless. In the book of Colossians, in Colossians chapter 1, in Colossians, the first chapter, notice what. Paul says here, actually back up to verse 16, if you will. In in Colossians chapter 1 and in verse 16, talking about Jesus Christ, for by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of the cross. Through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile, in mind engaged in evil deeds, yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. That through Jesus and His death, 
by the blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross, your life is changed. You can be made holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Those are the three terms used in verse 22. As the New American Standard Bible translates it, yours might read slightly different there. But all the ideas are very much the same. That we are made holy, where we are separated and made to be distinct from the world in our thoughts, our actions, our dress, our words, our priorities. That in our holiness we become more like God. We are to be holy as He is holy. That is what Jesus accomplished when He was on the cross and dying for your sins and for my sins. We might be made blameless. And this is not suggesting that we are somehow ever to have been without blame or that we are somehow sinlessly perfect. It means that we are without blemish, that we are without spot. Means that we're spotless and clean because of the cleansing power of Christ's blood. Because of His blood, when we come into contact with His blood, whenever we humble ourselves in submission and obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ, when we come into the waters of baptism and we reach the cleansing power. The blood of our Savior, we can be made blameless or perfect, if you will, complete. In Hebrews chapter 10, in Hebrews chapter 10, and in verse 14, as the Hebrew writer talking about the sacrifice of Jesus, he says in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14, for by one offering he has perfected. For all time, those who are sanctified. Jesus accomplished that when He went to the cross and gave His life. We're not blameless or perfect because of ourselves. We're blameless or perfect by God's redeeming grace and by the saving blood of Jesus, our Lord. And we are made to be beyond reproach. And as we are free from accusation, and there's no guilt or charge that someone could even bring against us. Because we have been justified by Jesus Christ. If you would turn to the book of Romans in Romans the 8th chapter. In Romans chapter 8. What we see is that as Paul is writing about the justification that we have in Jesus Christ. 
He says in verse 33, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. There's no accusation that's brought against those who have been redeemed and made right. Because God gave His Son. We're going to come back to Romans chapter 8 in just a moment. But what Jesus accomplished on the cross when He said, it is finished, by Him becoming the perfect sacrifice for sin, by Him saving us from the wrath of God, and by transforming us and making us holy and blameless and beyond reproach. That's the refrain and the song of victory. That Jesus came and He accomplished and did what His Father wanted Him to do. And that is the basis of our great victory. In Romans chapter 8 and in verse 31, notice this entire context here at the end of this book of Romans in the 8th chapter. He says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? The answer is no one. No one can be. He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. No one is going to be able to accomplish these things. He goes on in verse 34, Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died. Yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. No one can condemn because Jesus gave His life. And He's been raised from the dead. He's been vindicated. In verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or nakedness or peril or sword? And notice the last few verses. In verse 36, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. We are conquerors. We are victors. Because of what Christ did for you. Have you ever wondered how much God loves you? Have you ever asked, how could God love me? He loves you enough to give His only Son to die for your sins. Because God wants all of His creation to be in a relationship with Him. He wants all of us to be in a right relationship with Him. No one 
can take that away from you. No persecution has the power to separate you from the love of Christ. No one can bring a charge against a faithful child of God because God has justified you. We are more than conquerors because of what Christ accomplished. No outside force will be able to overcome the redeeming love of God. That's a message of security and victory and hope because of God's love for us. That's what Jesus accomplished when He said, it is finished. It is finished. It becomes a refrain of victory. Because Jesus finished the work of salvation, accomplishing what we were helpless to do. He made it possible for us to be reconciled to God and be brought back into fellowship with our Creator. If He had left that work undone, or if He had been unwilling to go to the cross, we would be left helpless and hopeless. But this morning, because of what Christ was willing to do, there's hope. There's salvation. There's victory. If you will come to the God who loves you so much that He did not spare His Son. If you're willing to give your life to Jesus, your King, to recognize Him and confess Him as the Son of God who died for you. To be baptized in water to come into contact with the redeeming power and blood of Jesus. We want to help you this morning. We want to help you become a child of God. And it might be that you are here and you have made those steps to become a Christian and a child of God, but you've not been living faithfully. You've turned back to the world. You've turned away from God. Will you not come back to Him? Giving your life in allegiance to Christ once more? God is merciful and He's gracious to forgive you. If we can be of assistance to you this morning, would you come now as we stand and as we sing?